Welcome to Strangers from KCRW's independent producer project and PRX. I'm Leah Tao. And this is Radiotopia Week, meaning all the shows in our Radiotopia network are doing one theme, the long shadow. You know, like when something happens that casts a long shadow into the future of everyone involved and nothing is the same ever again? This is such a story. It's about the randomness of fate and how life changes in an instant at the hand of a stranger. My connection to the story starts about six months before the actual event, when I first met these guys whose lives were about to change. It starts with another random coincidence of a much more benign sort. It was August 1996, and I'd been living in New York for exactly one year. I was living in a very grungy apartment in the East Village with Kimberly Pierce, the filmmaker who'd go on to make her famous debut film, Boys Don't Cry. Her career has no real bearing on the story, that's just a fun fact from my life. But Kim and I were roommates, and I was moving out because I was moving in with my boyfriend. And two weeks before I was going to move out, the phone rang, and it was a friend of a friend from Denmark. That's where I'm from, and he said, I'm Jakob, I know Cecil, who was a woman I knew a little bit, and I'm moving to New York next week, and I'm looking for a place to live. Do you have any tips? Now, I didn't know this guy at all, but Danes tend to stick together in foreign lands, so I said, you know, if it's cool with Kim, you can take my room. So I checked with Kim, it was cool with her, and I called him back and I said, you can have my room, but I'm about to go on a road trip, so I won't be here when you arrive in New York. This was before cell phones and emails and all that. So I said, I'll be back on the 25th. Call me after that, and you can move in on the 1st. So I went on this road trip with my brother and my cousin, and we got back late on the 25th. And on the 26th, we decided to go see a free Herbie Hancock concert in Washington Square Park. The guy who wanted my room hadn't called yet, but I knew he would. We got to Washington Square Park, and there were problems with the sound, so it took forever for the concert to start. We waited probably an hour, and we studied the crowd, the way you do when you're squished into great proximity with many strangers, and there's nothing else to do. And we talked about them, the way Danes always do when we're abroad, because we think no one understands our language. And there were these three guys right in front of us. And we talked about them and laughed at them a little, because they had that look. You know, like, they thought they were pretty cool. One of them even took his shirt off. Mind you, it was August in New York and sweltering hot, but we also thought he might be showing off a bit. So we were snickering and laughing when one of them turned around and said, Are you Danish? In Danish. And we were like, Ugh, this is so embarrassing. Although it wasn't clear if they'd heard us. And we said, Yes, are you? And he said, No, I'm American. But I lived in Denmark for six years and I just moved back. I'm Matt. And he had this intense gaze, like he was willing the entire universe to disappear from your orbit and leave only his presence. He was handsome, but more than handsome, he was charming, sexy, cocky. A bit too suave for my taste, you know, a kind of shameless flirt. But I instantly knew that he was probably a successful flirt about 200 times in a year. And he introduced us to his friends, Christopher and Jakob, who were both from Denmark. And Jakob was the guy who was taking my room. Of all the Danes in all the world, which are actually not that many, in a city of millions, he was standing next to me in Washington Square Park. Random coincidence. Small world. We soon became friends. And then six months, minus three days later, 
Jakob called me and said, something is happening at the Empire State Building. And I think Matt and Christopher are up there. I was supposed to go with them. We had planned to go together on the Empire State Building. I remember it was a Sunday. And I got a phone call from my father from Denmark saying that my grandmother had just died. And I really, really, I had a very good relationship to my grandmother. So, of course, I, I was very, very sad. And then half an hour later, Christopher calls me up and he said, Hey, Jacob, man, uh, we're going to come and pick you up and let's go there. And I, I just said, listen, I'm sorry, I cannot go because my grandmother died and I just feel like, you know, being alone instead. Who did go that day were the two other guys I'd met in Washington Square Park back in August. The charismatic American Matt, who'd lived in Denmark and who first turned around and said, are you Danish? And his bandmate Christopher, who was Danish and who'd come to New York with Matt to see if their band, the Bush Pilots, could make it in America. Also with them that day, at the Empire State Building, were two other Americans, Seth and Ben, who'd grown up with Matt. It was a... Sunday, February, winter day, unseasonably warm, very bright and sunny, very sunny. And it was one of those days that makes you think spring is coming. And even though we grew up in the area, we still like to sometimes do the touristy things. That's Seth talking. So the four of us decided on a whim, it's such a beautiful day, let's go up to the Empire State Building. And uh, we took the elevators up to the 86th floor. We encountered uh, this man, a, an older gentleman, who approached us and asked where the Statue of Liberty was. This is Ben talking. Matthew really was the one who engaged with him and, you know, pointed out where the Statue of Liberty was. And the man's questions were friendly and Matthew's answers were friendly. He asked us whether we were Italian or American. Are you American? Are you Italian? We answered. I think Matthew said, oh, well, I'm American. Um, and Matthew asked him where he was from. And I think that was more or less the extent of the conversation. And then this man took out a semi-automatic 380 Beretta handgun and shot Christopher in the back of the head, execution style, and shot Matthew through the front of his head. And somehow our friend Ben, who was in between them, was not shot. Matthew and Chris were lying there in pools of blood, you know, seizing and choking. And the injury was, you know, to the head and very graphic. And, you know, you, the amount of blood was uh, very overwhelming. But I was trying to stay with them and talk to them. At some point, I had the presence of mind to call uh, Matthew's father while I was up there and... Uh, you know, made a collect call, and uh, Matthew's stepmother at the time he answered, and I just, you know, started, you know, telling her to get Peter Matthew's father on the phone, and I guess I was also able to find out what hospital they were taking Matthew to, so I think I called back. I think I found that information out from the paramedic and, and, and was able to... Uh, to call them back and tell them that. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. First tonight's top story. A gunman opened fire at random on the Empire State Building's observation desk. 
Eight people were shot, one is dead. Joe Avalar is live at the Empire State Building with the very latest on this story. Joe? Paramedics rushed the injured out of the Empire State Building after a 69-year-old gunman opened fire on people. Eight people shot, a man in his 20s killed. The gunman shot himself in the head. He's in Bellevue now. Why the gunman opened fire has been a matter of some controversy, which we'll return to later. He died from his self-inflicted wounds at Bellevue Hospital. Matt was also at Bellevue, in a coma from the shot to his head, but hanging on to life. The man in his 20s who'd been killed was Christopher. Back in Denmark, his mother Jane was on an overnight ferry on her way home from Norway. We were on a boat from Oslo to, to Frederikshavn, and it was very stormy. And as, as soon as you get out of Oslo, few one. That's the Oslo Fjord. You can really feel the storm. So I went down to my bed and was lying there and said to myself, you have to think of something really nice in order not to get seasick. And I was thinking of Christopher, being in New York with his friends, playing music, having nice times, and try to imagine what exactly they were doing and how pleased he was with everything. And that was exactly the time when he was shot. That was so horrifying to think of. And I thought he was happy, having a nice time. And he was lying on the top deck floor of Empire State Building. Uh, it was awful. He meant, I can't say everything because I have two other lovely boys, but he meant so very much to me. Back in New York, Matt was undergoing emergency brain surgery. The bullet had gone straight through his brain, in one temple and out the other. And now his brain was swelling, and that'll kill you so the doctors had to remove a chunk of his frontal lobe to save his life. Initially, there was very little hope that he would survive, or that he'd be anything but a vegetable if he did survive. The doctors prepared his parents for this. And hundreds of people started showing up at Bellevue to see him. Matt had grown up in New York, and he had many fans and friends, and the hospital provided a room just for people who came to see Matt. Mayor Giuliani sat by his bed and held his hand. It was a media story and a bit of a madhouse. Seth was camped out there for weeks by the side of the guy who'd been his best friend since they were 14. I met Matthew in high school, sex ed class. <laughs> and because his last name started with G and my last name started with G, we were placed beside each other. And every day the teacher would describe things that were embarrassing and sensitive and we would all kind of blush and put our heads down. And not only would he answer the teacher's questions, about sex, but then he would start talking about his own personal experiences, and I was just astounded. And I just thought, wow, this is an interesting guy, and if half of what he says is true, he's already lived a remarkable life at the age of 14. Matt's womanizing ways didn't diminish over the years, and this created a bit of a problem while he was lying in a coma at Bellevue. A lot of women from all over the world started showing up and saying, where's my boyfriend, where's my boyfriend? And some of the other women would say, your boyfriend, that's my boyfriend. And so meanwhile, you know, Matthew was upstairs in the ICU holding on for dear life. And I was trying to uh, make peace among uh, his various uh, girlfriends. To everyone's amazement, 
Matt came out of the coma after just five days, with all his cognitive skills intact. It took a little time, of course, but soon he could walk, talk, play guitar, and no one could believe it. But Matt himself had no memory of the shooting, and he was waking up to a shocking reality. I said to my father, this is five weeks after the shooting, I said, Dad, you know what's weird? Thomas is here, who played bass in the band. Anthony's here, who played drums in the band. But where's Chris? And he started crying. He said, Matt, Chris was shot. What hospital is that? And I found out he died. It was, uh, do you know what OCDs are? Obsessive compulsive disorders? That's when it started really bad for me. Because the week before we played in uh, Ithaca, Utica, in New York City, and the way up to Ithaca, he said, there are two things I never want to do in New York. And I said, what are they? And he said, I never want to go to the top of the Empire State Building or the World Trade Center. And I convinced him to go that day. It was so bad. Like, I, I don't even know. It was just terrible. Uh, have you ever had OCDs? Uh, well... For example, if I would go under an overpass, I had to change my breath. When I, and if I didn't do it, I was f oh, furious I didn't do that. And when I'd be in a car, I would only breathe when there was nothing to my right. Then i go, <gasps> also, like, if I look at that, which is 12-12, I would somehow make it add up to 9. So I'd be, like, uh, 3 to the second power, for example, times 1. You see what I'm saying? What I did see was that Matt had come a long way since he was shot. With therapy, he'd been able to stop most of the OCD behavior, and he'd overcome the fears that dominated his life in the early days after the shooting, when he was afraid of every little day-to-day -day thing. I was afraid of toothpaste. And my stepfather took the toothpaste on his finger, and he put it in his mouth. I went, mmm, that's not so bad. So I did the same thing. I put it in my mouth. I'm like... Hmm. Oh, wait, it's really not that bad at all. And then I started brushing my teeth, and now I brush twice a day every day. There was and still is something childlike about Matt since the shooting. More so in the beginning. And it was confusing for people around him because, technically, he could do everything he did before. More or less, he could speak Danish, which is a foreign language to him, of course. He could play multiple instruments. And he could certainly handle a toothbrush. The damage and the changes were of a different nature. Like, he was just not the same guy. My dreams are not as grandiose as they once were. Uh, like, I work at the food bank, and I got to say, I have a tremendous sense of pride every time I go in that place. What do you do there? Um, well, uh, this might be disgusting to people, but I do pest control in the kids' division. It's a pretty big division. I take care of the garbage. I vacuum the floor. Um, before, yeah, good luck getting me into a food bank. Uh, you know, I play maybe charity shows for it or something like that, but to work there, come on. But now I love working there. I'd like to do that for the rest of my life. Uh, the women thing sure has changed tremendously. Like how, like how many girlfriends would you say you had in a week or in a year or before you got shot? <laughs> a, a, a lot, like a lot, a lot. Like, in a month, I guess I was together with, like, maybe 10, 12 different people in a month. And then what about after? Since the shooting happened, there were not many people. Three girlfriends in the last 15 years. Also, 
for the first time in my life, I was actually faithful to these people. But that's because nobody wanted to be with me. It's interesting because your looks didn't change dramatically, right? I mean, you were still a young, strapping guy after the show. Strapping guy. <laughs> Whatever, right? But well, well, there's something else in being a ladies' man. There's more to it than looks, right? A lot of it had to do with my chemistry as a person. See, before, I can manipulate people to get what I wanted all the time. I was very good at that. Like in the music business, to get places, you sort of have to make them think that you're the best at these things, which makes other people want to hear you or want to listen to you or want to get to know what you're good at. Uh, I thought I was the best, but not the best singer, not the best songwriter, not the best performer. But I thought I was a very good combination of all those things. And I felt very confident with that ability. And I felt very confident leading a band, leading a group of people into believing in the band. And Confidence was one of your main talents? It was my main talent. <laughs> now I don't project that image. Uh, do I want to? Sure, I want to. But I, I'm thinking, like, what do I have to offer people? And the thing is, not much. I mean, you know... Uh, I like to think I'm a good person. I know that I will not be making money to support anybody, to support a family, or to support someone else. Uh, I don't drive, so I'm kind of stuck somewhere unless people drive me places. I don't have a lot going for me, unfortunately. Yeah, I used to be quite a manipulator. I'm not anymore. People can manipulate me now as opposed to me manipulating them. I'm on the other end of that whole thing. Do you remember what it felt like to be that other guy? Yes, I do. Because you had it. It was in your hands. But um, you, you create a new person for yourself and you become brain injured. You're, you're just a new, a new guy. It's a new life. And if you learn to do that, then you have a better chance of being happier. But it took me like five, six years to realize that. You know, I'm in this brain injury support group at Kessler, and someone said to live the new normal. Aha. Uh -huh. That made a huge difference for me in terms of my goals in life. Now there's hope. Now there's a future. Now there's a purpose. When I went to see Matt, he lived in a home for brain injured people in Patterson, New Jersey, which is not the posh end of the Garden State, to say the least. He's since moved to Hawthorne, New Jersey, but he's still in a rehab facility, and he'd like to move out and live alone. But his family's not sure he could handle it. As eloquent and insightful as he can be, he still struggles with many things. He lost about a third of his frontal lobe in the shooting and the subsequent surgery, and he gets exhausted. He can only work a few hours a day, a few times a week. He'll sometimes repeat things, forget things, contradict things he just said or misrepresent what happened because he gets fixated on a version he's made up in his mind. They tried getting him a car because he lived pretty far from everything, but he crashed it. And it's a constant balancing act not to underestimate or overestimate Matt. But his progress is astounding. The last time I'd seen him was 10 years before at a holiday party, about five years after the shooting. And he was far rougher around the edges then too loud in moments, telling raunchy jokes to somebody's mother, you know, falling through the social cracks, which is typical of people with frontal lobe injuries. 
And his gauge is still a little off, like he'll blurt out something you told him in confidence or say the wrong thing to the wrong person. But he's gotten much, much better. He can write songs, but not like before. Matt wrote over 3,000 songs before he was shot, and he's only written three songs since. He stopped performing because he can't remember his own songs. And he can still play guitar, but nothing is like it was. Yet he wanted me to know that the changes hadn't been all bad. I think instead of talking all the time, it's probably hard to tell it now because I'm talking into the mic all the time now, but I, I listen a lot more to people than I did before, and I learn more about people and about the way people feel because, you know, before it was just, hey, listen to me, this is my feelings and you should deal with it, like that kind of thing. And now I'm learning to deal with feelings that other people have. And I think that makes me a better person in that way. Matt seems to have relative peace about his new situation. He told me he thought it might be more painful for the people around him who knew him before, you know, adjusting to the new Matt. And he might be right. Matthew was by far the most charismatic person I had ever met. Whatever that magical potion is that makes somebody charismatic, he had it. And that person did die. My best friend, you know, died with Christopher that day. Now, he's still alive, but the person I knew is gone and, and is not coming back. So if you look at it that way, it's still absolutely heartbreaking. How often do you speak to him or see him? I see him regularly, but we speak every day, at least once a day. I mean, I, I still consider him a best friend, but it's obviously not the same relationship. I'll be there for him, but the mutuality is gone. If I needed help, I really couldn't turn to him. Why not? Because I don't think he has the uh, judgment. I mean, he could listen, and I think he would express sympathy, but I don't think he could really give advice as to how to solve the problem. His problem-solving skills are impaired. He can't solve his own problems, let alone whatever my problems may be. So he's still a sweet, lovable guy, but he's a shadow of his former self. You also question, well, what is a person? If you scramble some brain cells, what happens to the person that was there before? What is a person's soul? And where is the soul of, you know, my friend? Whatever the loss, everyone in Matt's life always comes back to the fact that it's a miracle he survived. Not only that, he's walking, talking, working, living. Not the life he had before, but life. His friend Christopher was not so lucky. Christopher's mother, Jane, had to travel from her tiny town in the far north of Denmark to a big city in a faraway land to pick up her boy in a coffin. She spoke to me, sometimes in Danish, sometimes in English, about the horror of it all, like the flight home. It was awful. Sitting there, on the plane, knowing that he was downstairs in the cargo. The loss was so immense that uh, there was meaning in anything. He had to bury me, not the other way around. It's awful to bury a young child or young, a young man. You ought to have lost a child yourself in order to understand what it really does to you. 
Christopher had been home for the holidays just two months before. He stayed here for Christmas and went to Copenhagen to celebrate New Year's Eve. I stood in the window in my flat and looked out and waved at him and he was running. Of course, he was in the very last second in order to catch his train. And he ran with a big backpack and waved at me, smiling. So that's the last sight I had of him. Adding to the tragedy of Christopher's murder was the fact that his fiancée was pregnant when he was killed. And he had just broken this news to Matt at the top of the Empire State Building in the hour before he was killed. He hadn't dared to tell Matt that he was going to be a father because he thought Matt wouldn't like it because it, it might then spoil their energies in, in making the band really top band because some other things were going to, to take Christopher's time. Jane, in fact, has some photos of the guys taken that very day at the top of the Empire State Building before they were shot, where Christopher had just delivered the news and Matt had taken it well, so Christopher was smiling to the camera. Christopher was relieved that now he had told me he stood there on top of the Empire State Building looking ever so happy. Christopher's daughter, Johanna, was born six months after he was killed, so she's never known her dad. Now she's 16 and lives with her mother and stepfather in Copenhagen, but she still comes to visit her grandmother Jane up north. She's got a big mouth like Christopher had. <laughs> Do you blame the music or blame New York or blame... Americans? I, I no, 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 not Americans. I. It isn't like that. I think if you keep on thinking, be careful, be careful, don't do this, don't do that, you, you fence yourself in and it, then you don't live a life. And I know how fond Christopher was of music and that was the, the one and only thing for him. So he had to do what he did. And what makes me so good is that he uh, did very many things, the short life he had. He went abroad and he uh, went to very, in my eyes, expensive restaurants and enjoyed it ever so much. And I said to him, Christopher, you can't afford this. Please, you have promised to be careful. And, and then he laughed. And uh, when the, all this then happened, it made me so good to think that he took the time and he had, he had so many good experiences. That's good to think of. Of course, I have bad days, He's there all the time, you know, as a shadow behind my back. But uh, I mostly have all right, good days. Christopher was accepted to the Copenhagen Conservatory of Music on his first try, which is pretty rare. Many people try three or four times before they get in, if they get in at all. And it's especially remarkable considering that he didn't start playing music until high school. Jane dug out an old-fashioned cassette tape that Christopher had sent her the year before he died. In addition to being in a rock band, Christopher liked to play jazz. He's the guitar player. When he got killed, I, I had the idea that I was going to collect photos and put them in an album to give them to his daughter. But I, I never got to it. I got all the material lying downstairs, and, and but I haven't, I haven't had it done. <laughs> it hurts so much. And, and if I go down and pick things out, 
it hurts far more and uh, it's not very often I feel like doing that. Is that enough? She asked me in Danish and stopped the music. But she did let me hear a little more as we sat and watched the evening sky together. In the flat I live in now, which Christopher never has seen, I have view out to the south, to the west and to the east. So I'm very privileged, I think. There's a beautiful light, ever a good way of sitting and thinking and just staring. It pleases me ever so much. But we did live in Gül when Christopher was here. Me alone with three sons and uh, it was quite a job, but it was very, very good times. The sky is big, it's very big in the northern part of Jutland and that's why I, I, I love staying here. And it changes all the time. It's not the same every day, by far it isn't. Sometimes it's very dark with lots of clouds, but at the moment right now the sun is setting and it is uh, some shade of faded orange. And in an hour or so, the moon will be up. And when it's full moon here, it's full light, lots of stars. Not like in a town where, where you have all the lights, so you can't even see the sky or anything. It's nice and peaceful today. It has been very, very stormy recently, but not now. It's beautiful today. Questions remain as to why this happened. Why this man shot down unsuspecting strangers at the top of the Empire State Building. The alleged perpetrator, at least this is based on identification that was on his person, uh, is 69 years old. His passport indicates that his nationality is Palestinian and in the Palestinian Authority within the State of Israel. He was born in Jaffa back in 1927. Again, according to the documents on his person. That was then-Mayor of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, in a press conference after the attack. In addition to the personal documents, the man, Abu Kamal, was carrying a manifesto found on his body, railing against Israel and the United States, and all, quote, Zionists saying, My restless aim is to murder as many of them as possible, and I've decided to strike at their own den in New York at the very Empire State Building. Yet the authorities didn't describe the act as political. They did release the man's manifesto two days after the attack, which prompted the New York Times to write a story under the headline, Kill Zionists. In the article, the Times writer wonders why Giuliani and other officials portrayed the act as that of a deranged man and not as a politically motivated attack. The family of Abu Kamal said he'd lost his life savings, some versions say through gambling, others through bad investments, and that he'd lost his mind as a result and this became the prevailing story. Then in 2007, 10 years after the shooting, Abu Kamal's daughter, Linda, came forward in the New York Daily News and said that her family had been pressured by Palestinian authorities not to represent the modus as political. 
for fear that it would derail the peace process in the Middle East. She said that her mother had burned her father's journal, outlining his political designs, because she worried it would cause trouble for the family. But neither in the U.S. nor in Denmark has the attack been considered a terrorist attack by the authorities. After Linda Kamal came forward, Jane, Christopher's mother, wrote to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Denmark, asking them to consider this, but their response was that there was, quote, no evidence to support it. It bothers Jane, not because she really cares about the politics of it, but when you're trying to come to terms with such a random, violent act, anything that can clarify the story and close the loops in your head is helpful. Not that it would have been better if it was a terrorist attack, she says, but it would have been better if it was clear. And somehow, I sense, the authorities' refusal to acknowledge or even question the political implications feels to Jane like a refusal to acknowledge her loss, so immense inside of her, and so forgotten, so absent from the annals of history. Classifying the act as a political attack would at least make it a footnote in the history of the world. The victims sued the Empire State Building because the building had previously had metal detectors at the entrance, but had removed them because they were deemed, quote, unnecessary. This was a pre-9-11 world. They lost the lawsuit because it wasn't considered reasonably predictable that someone might attack a landmark like the Empire State Building. Again, a very different world not so long ago. What's clear is that Abu Kamal was not affiliated with any terrorist group, and his rantings in the letter do show signs that he'd somehow lost it, and that he wasn't just politically outraged, but also in a deranged state. What's also clear is that nothing can undo what happened, and that's a crying shame, because no one should die so young, especially at the hands of another. Jakob, the guy who didn't go to the Empire State Building that day, because his grandmother had died, was struck by this as he was flying home for his grandmother's funeral. And I was reading a Danish newspaper for the first time in like eight months. And suddenly I saw, what do you call it, the death... uh, Notice. Yeah, the death notice. And then it was my grandmother's name, Sasha Gorevitz, from this year to this year, showing that she was 86 years old. And then just below there was the death notice, which said Christopher Burmeister and where it says that from this year to this year that he was 27. And the thing I felt there was actually, I got peace in mind with my grandmother dying because it was just like, okay, this is the way you have to end life, but not like this with Christopher. Amen, and thank you for listening. Check out all the other Radiotopia shows about the long shadow. We have a different episode each day this week, and it's been extraordinary stuff so far. The Kitchen Sisters posted this one yesterday. They are American. They really care for their nails. Always 12 months, it's 12 holiday, you know. Mother Day, Father Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, you know. Valentine Day, birthday, July 4, whatever. Just big time, party hardy, updo, manicure, pedicure, money time. And speaking of Radiotopia, we're doing a mini fundraiser, and this will support strangers and all the shows in Radiotopia. And it'll help us create a fund to include more shows in this network, which is an absolute lifesaver for a little podcaster like myself. And I really want to see others have the same support. 
So go to radiotopia.fm and be sure to indicate that you listen to strangers because this will help me look good to my friends over at PRX. Even if you can only give a tiny bit, consider it because we need to keep this going. I may be the luckiest person in the world because I'm supported by Radiotopia and by KCRW's independent producer project, without which there would never have been a show. And KCRW and I are hosting a Strangers No More party on May 21st in LA. You can find all the details on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash strangersnomore.org. And please do like the show on Facebook. On May 19th, it'll be two years since we created that page, and we're trying to get to 2,400 likes in 24 months. And as of right now, we're just 25 short. So do it, please. It's also the number one way to engage with the show. There's also a link to the Facebook page at kcrw.com strangers. We can also see pictures of all the guys from today's episode. You can follow me on Twitter, at Leah Tao, and you can sign up for our mailing list on my website, storycentral.org. I have a lot of people to thank. Producing this episode in nine days was no easy feat. I had almost 30 hours of tape. And I could never have done it without Mike Dodge Weisskopf, Louisa Bick, Kristen Cartier, Christina Wunigensen, Julia Barton, Sarah Schiff, Thomas Bank, James Kim, and Ray Guana. And of course, all of our subjects today. Matt Gross, Seth Goldsamp, Ben Mintz, Jakob Gorevich, and also Christopher Burmeister, whose music is playing right now. And of course, his mother, Jane. And for the Danes who wonder why I'm saying Jane and not Jane Burmeister, it's because she's named for her British great-grandmother. Just before you think I've become an American hack or something. Strangers is supported by the Leon Lowenstein Foundation and the Lucius and Eva Eastman Fund, and also by the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, who are the funders, along with you, of Radiotopia. Please, radiotopia.fm. KCRW's Independent Producer Project is supported by the Annenberg Foundation, the Goldhirsch Foundation, and the Roth Family Foundation. I'm Leah Tao. Until next time, hug your kids, and don't be a stranger.